Well, we took a week off from our Hebrew series last week. Uh, we had Doug Holliday and Tim Timmons here, and it was a really good morning. Uh, today, we're going to jump back into our series in the book of Hebrews. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 24 through 31. Now, this series has been all about how Jesus is better And as our author has been teaching us this over and over and over again, he has also taken a few opportunities to warn his audience, and by extension us, of the danger of not believing that Jesus is better. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, we come to the author's fourth and final warning passage to us. So what I'm going to do is just begin by reading the text as usual, and then we'll pray and ask for the Spirit to come and help us. Uh, Just for your reference, if you're using an electronic device, you don't have a physical Bible in front of you, uh, I am preaching out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. If you'd like to follow along in that version, it would probably be most helpful to you if you're able to. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, we come to you this morning needing this warning. I pray that your spirit would give us the grace that we need to heed it. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you have a physical need and you go to the doctor and he he checks you out and you have your little meeting, uh, how does he normally end that appointment? What he normally does is if there is some type of medication or something that you need for whatever physical problem you have, he will prescribe you a medication either to heal you, to help heal you, or to keep you healthy. He'll tell you about the prescription, how many times you need to take it a day or a week. Now, suppose if you were just a little bit stubborn this day when you went into the doctor, and the doctor was like, look, you need to take this medication, I'm going to prescribe it for you. And you looked at the doctor and you were like, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not, I'm not going to take this medication. I don't want to do it. I'm just not going to do it. Just completely refuse to take this prescription that the doctor was offering to you for your own good and for your own health. How do you think the doctor would respond to you? If he is a good doctor, he will warn you of the consequences for not taking your medication. If you don't take your medication, you will not get better. If you're going there for something severe, it could be as severe as saying, if you don't take your medication, you will die. You will die. He will warn you of the consequences. Now, if a doctor would do this over our physical health, would we not expect the Word of God to do this over our spiritual health and well-being? You see, that's exactly what we have here when we come to Hebrews chapter 10. As I said, the fourth and final warning passage in the book, and our author is seeking to be a physician of the soul. He's seeking to be a good doctor. He is warning us, and he is prescribing for us medication that will help us persevere in our faith. And so as we come to this passage, what we want to what we want to happen as we look at it is we want to receive and heed the warning that the author is giving to us and we want to actively make use of the prescription that he is giving to us for the perseverance of our souls. Now, beginning here, in order for us to understand how we ought to receive this warning, we must look at how the original audience would have received it. Now, the author was writing to a mixed group of people. There were two types of Christians that were present where he was writing to. There were genuine Christians, those who were born again by the Spirit of God, who had confessed with their mouth that Jesus was Lord and Savior, and who were bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. This was the first group that, we, that he was writing to. Now, there's a second type of Christian that he was writing to as well. And these were merely professing Christians. Those who simply made a profession of faith in God and were partakers in the life of the church, but were not genuinely converted. Now, our author has maintained throughout the entirety of his letter that his audience is being tempted to become and is becoming stagnant in their faith, being tempted to leave Jesus and to drift from him. And I believe that the same temptation comes against us as well. There are genuine Christians here today who have become apathetic in their faith, who are allowing the enticements of the world to grab their hearts. And there are also some here today who are professing Christians. Those who uh, are partaking in the life of the church simply because it is beneficial to them. Perhaps being a Christian is advantageous to the place where you work. Labeling yourself as a Christian gives you some benefit here in the community. Or perhaps you come to church simply to maintain the peace in relationships that you have. Whether that's your marriage or otherwise. Professing Christians who profess Christ simply because it is beneficial to them. Now what we have to ask is, how does this warning serve these two groups of people? 
First, I believe that this warning serves to recalibrate the drifting, genuine believer. The one who is a genuine Christian but is tempted to walk away from Christ and is being enticed by worldly things. It is to bring into us a fear lest we leave Christ. And secondly, this warning serves to bring true repentance to the professing Christian. That as they see this warning, that they would come to true and genuine faith in God. Now this morning, as you hear the warning, it is your responsibility to consider how you ought to receive it. You must test your own heart. You must examine yourself and ask yourself, Am I a genuine Christian or merely a professing Christian? And then you will know how you ought to receive the warning. Now our author begins his warning by telling us of a specific sin and its consequences. And we see this in verses 26 and 27. He begins in verse 26 by talking about the deliberate sin itself. He says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, here our author begins by giving us insight into the characteristics of this sin that he is warning us about. He says that this sin is done continually. If we go on sinning, this is something that is done continually. But not only this, it is something that is done deliberately. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You see, we can only sin deliberately if we have knowledge of what is true and what is right. And then we purposefully go against that. We can't deliberately sin in ignorance. And that's what the author is saying here, that those who commit this sin do it continually and deliberately, having received the knowledge of the truth already. Now, by these statements and these characteristics, it is not clear what sin is being warned of here. But in verse 29, our author elaborates for us and shows us what this sin actually is. He says that the one who commits this sin does three things. He tramples underfoot the Son of God, he profanes the blood of the covenant, and he outrages the Spirit of grace. Now our author is not warning us about just any sin. He is warning us about the sin of apostasy. The sin of apostasy is the open rejection of Jesus as the only Savior by those who once made a profession of faith in Him. And this sin is not something that we merely fall into, but is a calculated rebellion against Christ. One of the things that I find interesting here in the book of Hebrews on that point is that the warnings, there's four in the book of Hebrews, and they seem to build on each other. Although this sin of apostasy is a calculated rebellion against God, it seems as though, with the way that the author describes the warnings, that there's a bit of a slow fade to actually getting to that point. 
In chapter 2, in his first warning, the author tells us that we must pay much closer attention to the message of salvation that we have received, lest we drift away from it. That doesn't sound like a calculated rebellion against God, does it? Sounds like taking your focus off of Christ and the message of salvation, and you begin to wander from Him. And then in chapter 3, he tells us not to harden our hearts against God, as in the rebellion when the Israelites did this, and they failed to enter the eternal rest of God. So we begin to drift away from God, away from Christ, and our hearts become hardened to Him, which leads us on a path to open rebellion, apostasy. It's a bit of a slow fade toward this sin that is being talked about here. And so we must pay much closer attention to ourselves and to the message that we have received. Now with this sin of apostasy in mind, our author shows us the consequences for committing this sin. Verse 27, or the end of verse 26, says that if we commit this sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, the author here, in telling us that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, is telling us something very startling. You'll remember if you were here with us over the last three and a half chapters, the author has been showing us the uniqueness and the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has shown us that the priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus is better than Aaron's. He has shown us that the sacrifice of Jesus initiates and secures a better covenant. That Jesus' sacrifice was effective for the people of God. That is, it did what the Old Testament sacrifices could not do. And Jesus' sacrifice secures our acceptance before God. He has made it abundantly clear to his hearers that Jesus is the only one who can save them. And what he is warning us of here is that if you turn away and reject Jesus as the true sacrifice, you will find salvation nowhere else. There is no hope for you if you reject Jesus. There's no other sacrifice that can atone for your sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for you. Now this first consequence of having no sacrifice to cover our sins leads to the second consequence, which is a fearful expectation of judgment. If we reject Jesus, all we can receive or expect to receive from God is wrath and judgment. That's what the text is telling us here. Now, what sort of judgment awaits those who reject Christ? The text says a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you reject Jesus, you place yourself in company with the enemies of God and you will receive the same fate that they do, which is an eternity in hell. Judgment and wrath forever. These are the consequences of rejecting Christ. There no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. 
And we will expect to receive judgment from God. Now, if our author could strengthen his argument anymore, he actually strives to go on to do so. In verses 28 and 29, he shows us using an example from the Old Testament how greater revelation given to someone, if they reject it, equals greater judgment. Now, we must remember that he is telling this message to ex-Jews who were tempted to go back to Judaism. And so every example he uses from the Old Testament would have hit very close to home for them. And so he begins in 28 with talking about revelation in the Old Testament and the punishment for it. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, to set aside the law of Moses here is a rather weak translation. The NIV, I think, renders it more strongly and more appropriately when it says, anyone who rejects the law of Moses. This rejecting of the law of God was to reject God as your ultimate authority, to reject God himself. And when somebody committed this deliberate sin in the Old Testament, he was punished with the death penalty. They would take this person and they would stone him. They were punished with a physical death. Now we see as we turn to verse 29 that those of us who have the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, if we reject him, we will receive a much greater punishment. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. You see, it has been revealed to us, the Son of God clearly, the blood of the covenant that he shed for us and the Spirit of grace, the working of the Spirit of grace. All of these things have clearly been revealed to us in the Old Testament. And if we reject what we have received, the punishment will be far greater than what they received in the Old Testament. You see, our author is arguing that if those in the Old Testament who knew God through the law were put to death physically for their apostasy, how much worse a punishment will await us who have a complete Revelation of God in Jesus Christ. If we reject him, there will be a greater punishment. And he goes on to show us what the punishment is in verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you understand how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God? Those who die rejecting Christ will go to a place of eternal torment. Those in hell experience perpetual darkness. 
Hell is a place where the light of God's goodness and grace never shines. Scripture talks about how when when somebody goes to hell, they are cast into utter darkness. And I don't think that it's darkness and the light in the way that we would consider it. I think that it's an absence of the experience of the goodness and grace of God. Do you know that from the moment that you were conceived, there has never been a single second that you have been without completely the goodness and grace of God? Not a single moment have you ever experienced perpetual darkness. But those who are in hell experience it endlessly. The light of God's goodness and grace never shines in hell. Not only this, but those in hell experience the horrors of an unquenchable fire. Hell is a place where the wrath of God burns hot, is continually poured out on those who rebel against him and what's worse than this is that we will receive a body that cannot dissolve we will receive a body that is fit for hell that will last forever not only this but those in hell experience endless shame Hell is a place where the conscience will incessantly bear the full weight of its sin. There has never been a single moment in this life where you have bore the full weight of your sin and the shame that you deserve. There are sins that you have committed that you don't even realize that you have committed. There are people that you have offended that you have no idea that you have actually offended them. And I believe that this is a grace from God because if we were to see how sinful we are, the shame and the guilt on our conscience would destroy us. But hell is a place where you are fully conscious of all of the sins you have ever committed and you will bear the weight of shame for them for eternity. Not only this, but those in hell experience everlasting hopelessness. Hell is a place where those who dwell there cannot escape. Now there are people who would like to posit an idea that uh, when people go to hell, that eventually they'll get out. Eventually, they will be brought to heaven and they just need to pay for their sins for a while and and then they'll get to come to heaven with everyone else. That is not what the Bible says. That is not true. There are others who would like to say, oh no, you won't last in hell forever. Eventually, you will be completely destroyed and you will cease to exist. That is not true. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that those who go there will experience everlasting judgment. If heaven lasts forever, so does hell. Those who go to hell have no hope of escape. 
because of the reality of hell, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom you ought to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I would plead with you this morning to receive, to heed this warning that the author is giving to us. If you are a genuine Christian here this morning who is tempted to reject Christ, stand in fear of the judgment that awaits you if you choose to do so. And if this morning you are here and you are merely a professing Christian, you are foolishly playing games with the living God, repent and seek his forgiveness while there is still time. Because when this life ends, you will not receive a second chance. Now our author here has warned us of the consequences for rejecting Christ. But he desires that we would not do so, that we would not turn away from him. And so he prescribes to us medication for our perseverance. And we see this specifically in verses 24 and 25. Now in the previous section, verses 19 through 25, the author actually gives us three prescriptions for perseverance. In verse 22, he says to draw near to God. In verse 23, he tells us to hold fast the confession of our hope. And in verses 24 and 25, our author tells us to stir up and encourage one another. Now, we have dealt with the previous two prescriptions of drawing near to God and holding fast to our confession when we preached in Hebrews chapter 4. So having dealt with those already, I want to consider in the moments we have left this third prescription in verses 24 and 25. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, our author gives three commands here that form his final prescription for perseverance. He says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And he says, encourage one another as you wait for the return of Jesus. As you see the day drawing near. Now what our author is doing here is he is showing us the importance of the church. He is showing us the importance of being in fellowship with other Christians. Do you understand the importance of the body of Christ? Do you understand the importance of assembling together and what we ought to be doing when we assemble? You see, our culture has conditioned us to devalue the church through promoting idolatry and individualism. And this is why we often treat the church so flippantly. 
If schedules conflict, Sunday and Wednesday church is what goes. If kids have hobbies during church times, it's okay, not a big deal. If you're tired when you get up in the morning and you just want to sleep in, well, it's Sunday, it's not a big deal, I'll just skip church today. Or when we get to church, we use it as a shallow social hour rather than seeking to stir up and encourage one another. I don't want you guys to miss the importance that our author is placing on the church and what we do here. Take a moment, if you will, to look around the room. Look at the people sitting in front of you and behind you to the left and to the right of you. Go ahead. This isn't weird. Like, we know, we know each other here. Just, just look around the room for a minute. This is what our author is saying. Your eternal destiny is partially dependent on the people sitting in this room. That's what he's saying. He gives these prescriptions for perseverance and then goes on to warn what will happen if we're not taking our medication. It will lead us to drift away from the living God. Whether you persevere in the faith and reach eternity or whether you fall away from Christ is partially dependent on those sitting here amongst you. And their perseverance is partially dependent on you. What a dangerous thing it is for us to think that the church is not important. To think that what we do here is not important. You see, for us to not come to church and not engage and not use it for what the Bible says it ought to be used for, what we're doing is we're telling God, I don't want to take the medication. I'm not going to do it. And he warns us of what will happen if we don't. The church is of eternal importance. If we desire to persevere to the end, we must understand the importance of the church and be engaged in the life of it. Brothers and sisters, the word this morning has warned us of the punishment that awaits us if we reject Christ. And God has graciously given us a prescription that we dare not neglect. Let us pray that God would give us the grace to heed this warning and to make use of this prescription that we might persevere to the end in faithfulness to God. Father, you are the perfect physician of the soul and your word has so graciously warned us your word has so graciously prescribed to us the medication that we need to persevere. Might we not be so foolish as to neglect it? Lord, I pray that those today, whether genuine Christians or professing Christians who find themselves walking away from Christ or tempted to do so, I pray that they would stand in fear.
of falling into the hands of the living God. And we ask that you would persevere us by your grace and by your goodness, that we would heed this warning for the sake of Jesus and his glory. We ask this all in his name. Amen.